I'm Sarah Samwell. This is Policy Talk. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show about policy analysis and international affairs. Recently, Global Affairs Canada released a new logo to brand its international aid and overseas development programs. They claim that it will raise awareness about Canada's efforts to reduce poverty and build a more peaceful and prosperous world. This move has drawn criticism from some, saying it sends the wrong message about aid. This month, I spoke with Themrys Khan, an independent research professional with over 25 years of experience in international development, social policy, gender, and global migration to learn more. So I want to start off with like, what is exactly aid branding? What is this phenomenon that the Canadian government is trying to do? So aid branding is basically, it follows the corporate style of branding, you know, like, um, uh, um, you know, toothpaste or, or potato chips branding, you know, there's a particular image and a name and a logo associated with something that uh, helps people to recall that particular product. And um, aid branding is a similar uh, phenomenon. It's basically uh, uh, telling people what this aid is for and where it's coming from, particularly the latter. Um, and it's, it, I won't say it takes exactly from the corporate sector when it started out, but as of late, uh, it has been following a very corporate sector model of making sure that there is a logo associated with all forms of aid. Um, and that logo is very visible and very clearly spells out um, where that aid is coming from. So why would a government be interested in implementing something like this? It's a good question. Um, I think like um, any product, the government is a product as well. I mean, if you see the government of Canada's branding, so to speak, we have the Canada logo, the name of the country with the flag on top of the A. Now that's a very, very um, visible statement about who the country is. And in a global world where there are so many different voices, everybody needs to stand out somehow. Um, and branding allows that to happen. The fact that it is used for, thing, for something that is meant um, technically, and I'm using air quotes here, to do good is the real issue. Uh, because aid um, and all forms of aid, development aid as well as humanitarian aid, uh, the ethos behind it is to basically assist those in need of some level of assistance. Um, and to say that you want to brand this assistance really doesn't uh, sort of uh, support that ethos in the way that it should. It shows that aid is then a commodity um, and it's not a public good, which is what it should be. So in the case of branding aid, um, it's like looking at aid as a product, which we want to market in the world. And that I think goes against every principle that aid stands for. Mm. But if someone were to approach you and say, but it's Canadian money. What's the what's the problem with branding it? How would you respond? 
So the, the argument that all aid given by developed countries to other developing countries, it comes out of taxpayer funds, which is what overseas development assistance is. Um, the argument sort of, for me at least, doesn't hold much merit. Because at the end of the day, there is parliamentary oversight and account accountability supposedly for this aid, right? Uh, there is an accounting mechanism in place. Uh, there is a budgetary mechanism in place. There's an evaluatory mechanism in place that uh, tracks exactly where this aid is going, how it's being used and what the effect of that is. Um, to say that uh, then you bring in the taxpayers and you bring in the citizens of a country uh, and say, well, they want to know what's happening with this aid, and so we need a logo for that, really doesn't sort of match that uh, process that aid normally takes. Hmm. Yeah, in the article, you mentioned that this is kind of counterintuitive to decolonization efforts and could be perpetuating a white savior complex. Could you expand on that? Sure. Um, so to start with, when we talk about decolonization of aid, now this is um, a term that's been thrown out of late uh, quite heavily, uh, particularly when it comes to northern donors. Um, and there's an entire discussion going on about the fact that uh, aid, is aid is perpetuating colonial myths in a pre-colonial time. Because obviously those who give aid, majority of them were um, colonists uh, a long time ago. And the countries that they now provide aid to, many of them were their former colonies. So now that we're out of the yoke of colonialism, uh, the fact that these countries through their aid still control uh, perhaps say the financial or governance mechanisms of a lot of these now independent countries um, is seen as a new form of, of colonialism. Um, and so the idea and the call that we must decolonize this aid, that this aid must be separated from ideas of colonialism and post-colonial and colonial control are what decolonization of aid is all about. Um, and the white savior complex is connected to this because of course, most of the colonists were all white um, and the colonizers non-white. And the idea that they came to save, uh, you know, uh, countries like mine, for instance, or, or uh, the African continent and South Asia, et cetera, still remains, it's still perpetuated by the fact that, again, a lot of the aid givers are primarily white northern countries, and the countries who receive aid are not. So the idea that it's the white aid provider is coming to save the poor non-white aid receiver um, is perpetuated by exactly the framework that constitutes aid, so the giver and the receiver. So I think these calls are now becoming more and more prominent, and the idea of branding aid perpetuates these myths further in the sense that the aid giver wants complete visibility and attribution for what it is doing. Whereas again, the ethos of this is not that. The ethos of this is development. It's to improve. It's to provide independence uh, or systems that can allow others to be independent and self-sufficient. Um, and so aid branding basically contradicts uh, that in many ways. So what would a decolonized aid framework look like? Well, there are a lot of discussions going on about that. Um, at the moment, there's no real clarity because the discussion stems from um, perhaps changing the existing frameworks that Northern donors um, currently follow to actually having no aid at all. 
to completely ending aid you know so the spectrum on that is very very broad right now um, uh, and at two different extremes and then there's all the discussions of the options in between about what can happen so that's an ongoing discussion right now and it's still early days to tell because i think there's a long way to go for that discussion to evolve into something more concrete uh, but the fact that these discussions are happening is important um, they're happening more in the northern aid system than they are in southern countries, which is a slight cause for concern because that also shows that the narrative of decolonization is still being held very much in the north. Um, and, and the message coming out of there is obviously that, you know, no, we're not going to end aid, you know, because it's a political maneuver at the end of the day. But the calls for decolonization of aid and being more self-sufficient from the South are still not loud enough. And that's for various reasons, I think. Um, a, the platforms available to many uh, in the South are not as common as they are to those in the North. Um, and then it's it's basically voice. It's who you're listening to. It's who you're, whose voice you're amplifying. And that's still not happening in the South, I think for various reasons, because Southern countries are also have political agendas and motivations to receive aid. But nevertheless, those conversations are taking place. And I think it'll be a while till we actually see what they materialize in. Mm. Now, of course, we're in the middle of this pandemic and the pandemic is shifting priorities all over the place. So what kind of impact have you seen um, on the aid system with COVID-19? Um, I think it's been very apparent that the aid system has struggled a lot. Um, I think the, the power and control that it held up till the point of COVID-19 was uh, pretty systematic. And the assumptions were that it would roll into COVID-19 in the same way, but COVID-19 has obviously thrown a lot of curveballs for everybody. Uh, particularly right now, as we see with the whole vaccine rollout issue globally. Um, aid budgets are being cut in a lot of countries because of the austerity measures, because of economic slowdown, which is completely understandable. Um, and I think aid has taken a cut, uh, and I think it will remain that way for a while to come, no matter what we say. There are good sides to that and bad as well. I think the good side to that is that perhaps it will give countries in the South, the recipients of aid, a chance to think about how to create alternatives to this themselves. Uh, the bad side to it that the need is immediate at this point in time, more so because of um, economic slowdown and a need for vaccines uh, to get to everybody faster. Uh, and in that sense, I think things are still uh, not materializing the way they should, particularly in Canada's case, for instance. Uh, Canada's uh, contributed to the COVAX facility, but COVAX is still not rolling out the way it needs to because of, of, of various issues. So again, to claim that, you know, you know, we have provided aid to the COVAX facility and, you know, we need a pat on the back for doing that, whereas the systems that control COVAX are nowhere near being able to support, uh, you know, the global uh, vaccine rollout is something that perhaps we should be thinking about. Mm -hmm. So during COVID-19, there's been this kind of concept of mutual aid. Um, and it seems that the discussions are kind of moving more towards that, at least on an interpersonal level. Could that be a model moving forward on a, a more international level? 
Yeah, I'm not sure about the discussions on mutual aid. I mean, and this is purely my own personal uh, interpretation of it. Uh, there's a lot out there right now uh, in terms of mutual aid as being an alternative. But I, I, at one, you know, at one point side, it is it makes sense because mutual aid is a lot of it is about the systems that we already have established ourselves in our own countries. So, for instance, the uh, system of uh, humanitarian assistance that countries give within uh, themselves uh, for for all. Even in COVID, we've seen in Pakistan, where I'm, I'm, I'm I am at the moment, is that uh, people have stepped up in in providing assistance where needed, uh, not to the extent that we see in other situations, for instance, like natural disasters, like floods or earthquakes and so, which is, it's a very urgent, it's a very visible need. COVID has been a very invisible need, which is why it's been harder for people to react to. Uh, and so given that, the whole idea of mutual aid is sort of still, uh, you know, it's still a very vague notion and concept. Uh, we should, there's been a lot of talk in uh, addition to COVID, uh, to, uh, to mutual aid um, in cash transfers and, and providing debt relief um, and providing uh, universal uh, income, uh, universal basic income to people. And I think all these concepts are pieces of the puzzle. Um, I don't think any one of them is a solution, but a combination of them might be. So I think if we start talking about things at that level, um, we may get somewhere, but personally, I'm not convinced about the whole concept of mutual aid at the moment. So, yeah, there are a lot of pieces when it comes to these puzzles. What would it take to start equalizing these relationships in, when it comes to aid um, from the global north to the global south? That's a great question um, and a tough one to answer because, like I said, right now we are and we've just begun the discussion. Uh, about the inequalities uh, and the power imbalances between North and South. You know, we never really, they were always there uh, along the sidelines, but they're, they're not as vocal as they are now. So given that we're just in the starting point in terms of creating a discussion between uh, North and South, I think we're still far away in terms of, you know, what we could lead, what this could lead to. But I think the most important thing is to recognize that aid is inherently political and it's not just political for the giver, it's also political for the receiver. Um, a lot of us accept aid not because we're forced to, but because we have reasons to as well. We have political reasons to as well. We also want to be on the global stage um, and aid helps us in that, in the sense that we as recipients then become visible. Um, the problem arises is when we don't have any control over that aid. And I think that's where a shift needs to happen. Um, that if we're talking about giving aid, and here, let's use the term mutual, not as in mutual aid, but let's say mutual uh, interest. Um, aid givers should not be the ones deciding fully where their aid should go uh, and how much of it should go. I think that is a discussion that needs to be done um, across the table from every, with everybody else. It's not easy to do because you're talking about maybe speaking at country to country level. Um, and a lot of donors will say, well, we do a thorough in country needs assessment before we decide our priorities. But in many cases, that's not 
So, for instance, let's again take Canada, for example. Canada has says that their priority is women's empowerment. And before that, it started with reproductive health, right? Our feminist international foreign uh, assistance agenda. And that's wonderful. Uh, obviously, um, gender equality is a priority to most countries of the world. But the fact is, it's not the only priority. And if you are saying that this is it, and this is the criteria for us to decide where our aid goes, you're obviously missing something through the cracks there. And so that discussion needs to be done face-to-face. -face. Um, and I think if that starts, we may be on a better path to the utilization of aid. Um, the second thing I think it's very important is that AIDS, and this is what everybody is calling the localization agenda, which is another very uh, you know, fancy buzzword that's doing the rounds these days, that organizations that are based in the South, so not international organizations or their affiliates, but actually organizations, homegrown development organizations in, in, in recipient countries, that they're the ones who should be in control of deciding how this aid is used as opposed to international organizations being one tier above them, implementing it for them. Um, so I think that's the second uh, level of thought that we need to give to this issue. And the final level of thought is the evaluation agenda. So the evaluation of aid, which tells uh, donors whether or not the aid is making a difference is also very much in the hands of the donors. Um, it's an OECD evaluation criteria that's used globally. Um, it is a third party evaluation firm in most cases from the aid giving country itself that goes in and evaluates. And the beneficiaries basically just become these muffled voices. I think evaluation should also be in the hands of aid receivers. They must have the right to evaluate the aid that they've received. Um, so I think if you look at these three things, deciding, sitting face to face along with aid giver and aid receiver and deciding priorities together, uh, making sure that aid is implemented in country by in country and aid is evaluated in country by in country, of course, with collaboration, collaborative efforts with donors. I think that's when we'll be able to get somewhere. But right now, the reins of all these three are controlled pretty much by northern donors, which means it's a one-sided uh, effort. Yeah, and I can hear the critics may be saying that, well, a lot of these countries have very corrupt governments. How do you get around something like that? Absolutely, absolutely. And they do have corrupt governments. I mean, I'm not going to go into the history of how most of them ended up having corrupt governments, because then we're going to go into the whole discussion on you know, colonialism and its effects uh, over most of the world. But yes, a lot of these countries do. Uh, have corrupt governments and that the first thing I would say is for donors to think that all the money that they've pumped into anti-corruption and, and governance, uh, good governance, hasn't worked. So why is that, right? What are they doing wrong? Why is everybody always pointing fingers at us that our governments are corrupt? Uh, whereas, you know, we've seen a lot of scandals emerging in a lot of donor countries as well uh, when it comes to that, right? Maybe at different levels, but corruption is there everywhere. So using that as a reason that, oh, you know, we lose our money. That's why your uh, mutual accountability systems come in. That's when you do your due diligence and your homework. That's where you decide that, okay, uh, there may be cracks, there may be risks that will come, that a lot of this aid or some of this aid may go into corrupt systems. But, you know, that's the risk you have to take to address the systemic issues that a lot of countries face. Mm. 
Yeah, and I'm wondering if you could speak a little to maybe those international institutions that we need to address, things like the World Bank, the UN, that, um, you know, had the promise of being this equalizer, but have kind of ended up replicating colonial patterns. Is there something we need to address there too? Oh, definitely, absolutely. I mean, the entire multilateral system, and these days there's another big discussion going on about whether multilateralism is relevant anymore, because a lot of see the UN system, for instance, as a complete failure. Uh, the World Bank is no stranger to criticism about its massive you know, structural adjustment programs around the world that have actually you know, not produced anything at all. And the, the, the responsibility of the failure lies mostly on us. And again, there's that word again, well, those governments weren't stable. There was no proper mechanism in place. There was no, there was complete apathy. There was corruption. And so these programs failed. The issue is if you know all this, when you're going into a country, why don't you do something about it before you go in? Why don't you make sure that your systems are, are taking all this into account? Because then it just becomes a very convenient excuse to lay the blame on someone else. And I think that's what a lot of people are looking at the multilateral system for. They're looking at various UN agencies and seeing what is their accountability? Uh, what is their responsibility uh, when they go out to countries and implement projects? And the World Bank, unfortunately, has become so untouchable that whatever it does, wherever it is, um, nobody can really say anything to it. And I think that is where um, we should be more vocal. We should actually be challenging uh, multilateral systems, which are governments in themselves. But that's not an easy task to do, particularly for countries that don't have a seat at the table. Uh, but definitely, I think the whole idea of rethinking multilateralism, um, where discussions are also taking place now, again, it's going to take forever because these are, I mean, these are systems that I don't think any of us can really get through to. Uh, but I think as long as people talk about it uh, and bring it onto the table, um, I think that's important. And let's see where we go from there. It's an uphill task. As you're talking, I'm thinking about how Canada has both an internal policy of colonization and now this external policy of colonization. You know, our Indigenous people still live under a very colonial system and, you know, similar arguments can be made for the U.S. So I'm wondering, what does the colonizer need to do to kind of start decolonizing themselves both internally and externally? That's a great question. And I think my um, biggest observation of Canada is exactly that. It is its relationship with its indigenous people. For me, and I'm an, a migrant to Canada, as well as somebody who belongs to a, you know, a non-white Southern developing country, the question of the fact that you, um, and not just Canada, but the US as well, um, and other countries with you know, Australia as well, who have indigenous populations. I mean, you have a, a group of people within your own borders that are so marginalized and vulnerable. And those are the exact two words that you use in your development speak, that we are here to assist the marginalized and the vulnerable of the world but you exclude your own in it um, is, is baffling to me. Uh, the fact that you have this massive development apparatus for the rest of the world, but none for yourself. And until you are able to set your own house in order when it comes to that, you know, 
uh, not just in terms of providing uh, indigenous peoples with rights uh, and basic services, but also legislatively providing them with the recognition and the rights as equal citizens that they deserve. How can you go out uh, talking about righting all these wrongs in other countries? I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, and I've spoken to a lot of people in Canada about this and they say, well, we can do, we need to do both side by side. And, and my reading of this is you can't do both side by side because you have not even touched upon uh, the tip of the iceberg in your own country, you know, in my own country now. I mean, Canada is my home as well. Um, you, you cannot claim to have any level of superiority in knowledge or expertise for any other country. And I am always amazed and baffled and very saddened that all the so-called expertise that has flown out to other countries to provide advice and consultancies and implement projects is not used for, for our own country. Um, and I don't know where that discussion, I mean, we don't even have those discussions in Canada. So until we start having those discussions ourselves, um, we can't really claim to be making a difference elsewhere. That's a very fair point. Um, so I, I'd like to finish off by um, getting your little a little preview of what you think is going to be coming up in the world of aid and policy relations over the next few months that we should be kind of paying attention to. And that's um, that's a bit of a gray area. It, it's hard to say, I think, for the next, not just a few months, I think for the next year or two to come, COVID will still consume us. And I think top of the agenda will be vaccine rollout. And given the situation we have now where vaccine rollout in majority of the world is non-existent, whereas in the developed world, um, regardless of, of you know, the, 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 the hurdles that they say they are still facing in terms of supply, et cetera. Um, I think um, we will have to focus on, again, you know, how much do you want to internalize the fact that you, I mean, are you, uh, for instance, are you uh, vaccinating your indigenous populations? You know, they should have been top of the list. Are they, right? You do that and you move on to other countries as well. But I think right now the discussion is so, no, we want to hold on to everything that we have because we're so scared of losing out on it. That attitude is going to prevail for a while to come, which I think is disastrous for the rest of the world because it will ultimately impact decisions on all other forms of aid. It will impact on decisions of humanitarian aid uh, in areas of conflict. It will impact on development aid in other countries. So I think this is going to dominate. It's going to dominate. Uh, and until we have a clear idea of how um, this world is going to be vaccinated equally, I think we can't really talk about other forms of aid. So I think this is something that's going to be top of the agenda because it's indelibly connected to aid. Mm, definitely. We can already see that unequal relationship in the pandemic with the vaccine rollout. Well, thank you so much for doing this. No, not at all. It was a pleasure to be on. Thank you. This podcast was made possible by the team at iAffairs Canada. To see more of our content, go to iAffairsCanada.com. I'm your host, Sarah Samuel. See you next time.